through these first several verses of John's letter to the seven churches in Asia Minor and to the church in every age, even until the day of Christ's return. Here, John sees Jesus and he introduces himself to the church as a fellow laborer in the building of the kingdom. John, uh, Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, I'll read to verse 13. I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Thus far, the reading of God's word, you may be seated. We know these things are too high and wonderful for us, and they must be given to us knowledge and wisdom and understanding by the Spirit. Let's pray for the Lord's help now. Oh Lord, would you grant to us wisdom and understanding from your word that we might be a people whose hearts are not only informed, but captured and transformed by the truth and by your spirit. That you would abide in our hearts, O Lord, until your word has worked in us the purpose for which it has been given. That end, that is, to become like Christ himself. Do this in us, we pray. In your name we ask. Amen. I want us to always, as we move through the book of Revelation, as we live, endeavor to live lives of holiness before the Lord, be aware that there is more to life than what you see around you. That there is more to life than living for the next day, for the next holiday, for your birthday, for Christmas, for that next election year. However long you may want the next thing, whether you are single, single and you want to be married, or you're married and you want to have children, or you have a job and you just want a better job, there is always something to look forward to. And there's always something to be excited about or sorrowful about. Life is one continual repetitive event after another. This is why we're moving through the book of Ecclesiastes and the book of Revelation together, the two easiest books of the Bible to understand. <laughs> Honestly, they're not just difficult. Certainly with the book of Ecclesiastes, we just don't want Solomon to be right. In the book of Revelation, we're going, what in the world is happening here? There are wonderful things to see. And it is like one of those moments where you do wake up at Christmas and the tree is lit and the gifts are under the tree. And I remember being a young child and going down and my parents would actually put gifts under the tree on uh, Christmas Eve after we went to bed. And you would sort of walk into the room and you would wipe your eyes and you would just let the glory of it overwhelm you. Of course, 
after an hour or two, and the paper is in the garbage bag, because we're one of those families that as soon as you unwrap a gift, the, bag, the trash has to go immediately into the bag. It can't just be strewn about the floor. It all wears off. Is there a, a perpetual glory for us in life that can sustain us through all of it? And it is here in the book of Revelation. And it is here in what John sees, not just what he hears. And it isn't that John is just an author. John is really in the book of Revelation an observer, and he is describing to us, for us, and for the church in every age, glorious things that he sees one after the other after the other. Children, can you imagine going to some of these incredible toy stores in the big cities, and not just like the toy store that looks like a communist building that's just rectangular, and it's just aisle after aisle of boxes, but there are actual exhibits. Think Legoland. Don't just think Target and their Lego aisle. Think Legoland. And you walk into it and you go, I didn't know it could be this great! Like this is the Disney effect, or at least it was. Although they continue to try that, especially if you go to their theme parks, they want you to go and forget that there is a world outside of this imaginary place. This is no imaginary place. What John sees, what John hears, what he beholds on the Lord's Day, on the Isle of Patmos is something that should sustain the Christian heavy, weighty, meaty food for the whole, not only of our lives, but the whole age of the New Testament church. And this is what John wishes to introduce for us as he talks about himself in some small way and also what he begins to see and hear as he begins this extraordinary journey in the book of Revelation. Two points that I want to make is John beholds Christ in glory. The first, a brother and an eyewitness. A brother and an eyewitness. And then secondly, beholding the one who speaks. Beholding the one who speaks. Now, John has not yet introduced himself in full. Here, he does. He gives some biographical information. John, the apostle, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on, on the island called Patmos on the account excuse me, of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, John refers to himself as a brother and a companion, a brother and a partner in three things, tribulation, kingdom, and endurance, patient endurance. Now, we'll get to those three things first, but John is locating himself within the body of Christ Jesus, though he is not with the church. He has been exiled, having previously been tortured by the kingdom of Rome, dipped in hot oil. I don't... Have you ever burned yourself? And even badly burned yourself? Being dipped in hot oil is like, well, 
if you like to go to McDonald's and see your French fries cooked, put your finger in there and imagine what that might feel like. That was what John endured. And so obviously John is weakened. He is scarred. But he is one who accounts himself, even in his exile, part of the work of the kingdom. Now, while we're talking about John as the author or observer of the things that he sees, I want to cover something that is a rather hotly contested issue about Revelation, and that is when it was written. And there are really two sort of two camps. There was a later date, sometime in the middle of AD 90, 95 or 96, and then there was an earlier date that is prior to AD 70, which was when the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple took place. Now, you may say, why is this important? Because every time you open the Scriptures, you are bringing a set of hermeneutical principles. One of the hermeneutical principles that all Christians ought to bring to the Bible is, this is God's Word. And because you have that hermeneutical principle, hermeneutics just means how you interpret something. It's a fancy word that really can just be how you interpret What are all the things you bring to the Bible that govern the way you read it and believe it? Doctrine being the most important. How we look at Revelation changes the way we think of what John or who John is writing to and what John is saying. Now, I'm holding to an earlier date, before AD 70, and I have two main reasons. One is geographical, the other is political. When John writes, the temple is still standing. Now, the reason I would say that is because if you turn to Revelation chapter 1, John is told by the Lord to measure the physical temple. Now, you may say, John's on Patmos, not in Jerusalem. The problem with that is this. There are marvelous things that John sees that cannot be explained any other way than God gives him sight and the ability to see those things. And so God brings John to the temple and in Revelation chapter 11 verses 1 through 2 tells him to measure it. And John speaks of the temple in Revelation chapter 1 the same way that Jesus does in Luke chapter 21 about the Gentile courts and the temple itself. They use the same language and they are speaking not about a spiritual temple but about the physical temple that is in Jerusalem. That temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. This is a historical fact. And Jerusalem was raised, that is, burned to the ground, more or less. And so John and Jesus are referring to the same thing. And not only that, in terms of geography, but John writes at the time of Nero's reign. And the way I know that is you look to Revelation chapter 17. And in Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 6, we read about certain figures in history. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he has carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. 
The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a great name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now, what in the world is this about? What do we see here? We see seven heads, ten horns. Now, the early church would also go, huh? Until this vision is actually interpreted by John himself. Verse 9, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, the other has yet to come, and one, when he does, must come and remain only a little while. Now, here is what John is referring to, being told by the angel, according to the word of Jesus, what this is all about. Now, I want you to get used to this stuff. I don't want you to think that the first time you read the book of Revelation, you go, oh, I know what that means. We need to be patient. We need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And here, we actually have not just the vision, but the interpretation just following the vision. Now, when an early Christian that is a citizen of Rome hears about seven heads, they don't go, they don't say, oh, I understand that. But when they hear of the seven mountains or the seven hills, what does a Roman Christian think of? When you hear Crowder's Mountain, what do you think of? Crowder's Mountain. When a Roman Christian hears of the seven hills, they hear of, in their minds, the seven hills of Rome. And here it is not just the seven hills referring to Rome, but John interprets even further. The seven hills refer to seven kings. Julius Caesar, Augustus, Tiberius, Gaius, Claudius, and Nero. And then the one who reigns but for a short time, Galba. These are the emperors of Rome. And these emperors brought great persecution and abomination against the church. This took place prior to the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of of the temple. This is why I would hold to an early dating of the book of Revelation. Now, this is not to say that those who disagree with me are wrong about all of the interpretation of Revelation, but this dating also coincides with and supports what is often referred to as a preterist interpretation of the book of Revelation that many of the prophecies that are given prior to and the signs and symbols prior to chapter 19 of the book of Revelation take place prior to the fall of the, de- of the temple and the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. The beast is Rome. And so if you're looking for a, a sort of glossary of terms, there's one for you. Dating and the identity of certain Characters in the book of Revelation. Now John is writing then to the early church, and he is saying to them, despite the fact that all these sufferings are coming upon you, Christ is king. 
Julius is not king. Nero is not king. Galba, who was king for six months, is not king. Christ is king. And you need to remember that. Your perspective that is a blood-bought, messianic, revealed perspective is greater than what you see with your eyes. And John, as he is writing to the church, isn't just giving them information. As a brother and companion, as a partner in the work of the gospel, he is writing to them as a father, as a brother, and he is seeking to encourage. He is a brother and partner in tribulation. How is he? Because he has suffered. And the kingdom, in what way? By laboring and ministering for the manifestation of the kingdom and patient endurance. John wrote this 2,000 years ago. And much of what he prophesied has come to pass, but there is still some that has not. We still await Christ's second coming. But John wants us to think of himself as a pastor, as a brother. These teachings, this information, comes to us from one who loves the church, who loves Christ Jesus, and wishes for us as partners, as brothers and sisters in the tribulation, in the kingdom, and in the waiting for Christ to come again, to have in us the same response he has in seeing the things that he saw. He's walking us through it. It's a cosmic tour guide to see these glorious things. Partner in tribulation, partner in kingdom, partner in waiting. He is our partner. He is a bearer of the testimony. And this is what all Scripture really is. And children, you learn this in the children's catechism. Who wrote the Bible? Chosen men inspired by God. And why has Christ given us this word? Why couldn't the Bible end with the book of Jude? Because, well, Christ knows what we need. And what we see in the book of Revelation is... It is that mammon in the wilderness that sustains us at times. When it does not feel that the promises of God are true. But what Revelation does is it gives us an exalted vision of the revelator. Of the one who has made the promises. And how those promises, in fact, have come, are coming, and will come true. My God is bigger than your God. It's what Israel saw in Egypt when God brought the ten plagues against the Egyptian gods. And what is God doing in the first few chapters of Exodus? He's showing off, He's flexing. He's showing the gods of the Egyptians. Your gods mean nothing. They have no power. The demons that the Egyptians worshipped had no power compared to the God who is in heaven. There is no other God save God. John is writing to us. And look at verse 7. 
What is he saying? Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. He's writing about the revelation. Verse 7, remember, is not a future event only. It is a past, present, and future event. It is past in that John is referring to the ascension and the result of Christ's ascendancy into heaven and seated on the throne of heaven and earth results in the conquest of the nations. John is giving us information about how the conquest happens. It is because Christ is upon the throne. And so naturally, having communicated who John is about himself, he then beholds the one who sits among, or walks rather, is among the churches to whom he writes. And that leads me to my second point, the one who speaks. John introduces himself, and then he talks about the occasion in which he writes. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a very loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I love, and it is no coincidence, that the Lord Jesus Christ chooses to reveal himself to John on a Sunday. Sunday is resurrection day. It is the Lord's day. It is a parade day. It is the day in which Christ exalts himself among his people because of the work of salvation and kingdom dominion that he is doing in our midst. Can you imagine going through all the preparation to get married and then miss your wedding day? Would you be married? Would you have security? You labor for the kingdom six days. I hope you do. And it may be at work, it may be at school, it may be in your home. You may be like me, and every day is church day. Or something in relationship to the church. But then you miss feast day. Sunday, Christ comes to John. And it's the resurrected one speaking on his day. It is the day named for Christ. We call it Sabbath day or Christian Sabbath. It is the Lord's day because it is on Sunday that Christ performs a greater miracle even than creation itself. John beholds the resurrected one on resurrection day. I had a very dear friend, an elder of mine, for a number of years at Matthew's OPC. Struggled with a heart attack. He was getting better and then he died. And he died while walking with his wife on a Sunday afternoon. And I thought, what better day to go? I want to go on a Sunday. Hopefully, I'm not preaching, but I want to go on a Sunday. Maybe I've made a great point, and my fist is like this, and then I just kill over. And then I want everybody to stand up and cheer for the truth and the blessing of that. What's amazing is this. John is, like Paul oftentimes, separated from the church. But as John is writing to the church, 
He is present with the one who is present among the churches. This is what Resurrection Day reminds us of. Is that Christ is in His exalted state, ever present with His people. And the way that we remember that best is we do not absent ourselves from doing what Christ does on the Lord's Day. He walks with His people. Do you walk with the people of God on the Lord's Day? What do you dwell upon? What do you talk about? What do you see? What do you hear? Well, you hear this. He hears, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. What was said? Well, verse 11. Right. So John is standing there. His attention is, in essence, pointed in one direction. And then he hears someone behind him say, Right to the seven churches. And that voice was like a trumpet. And when you hear a voice, what do you do? Who's talking? And what does John see? Can you imagine turning around and seeing this? Not Jesus of Nazareth, broken on the cross, in human flesh, on earth, but Jesus in His human flesh, now glorified and ascended in heaven. And He has His kingly, priestly garments on. And John turns around, and what does he see? Well, he hears the voice, he has received the call, right! And what does he see? The call to write to the seven churches, and he sees the seven churches that are figured by, symbolically, by seven lampstands, and there is a Son of Man clothed in a long white robe and a golden sash. Now, we will talk about Jesus appearance next week. But I want to talk about what he's wearing and what John sees. He sees Christ. And he sees Him not as the disciples saw Him or as Mother Mary saw Him dead upon the cross or as the apostles almost saw Him as He was ascending into heaven. Paul saw Him in that way. John sees Him. Stephen saw Him. And what Stephen saw as he was dying caused him to exult with such joy that he proclaimed, you know what? All you people that are killing me, may God have mercy upon you. What Stephen is saying is, may you see Christ as I see Christ. That is what John wishes us to see. He is relating this experience. A vision, a voice, a calling. And he sees Christ amongst the lampstands. Now, that is something that we need to contemplate for some time. He is the Son of Man, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, Matthew chapter 8. In fact, Christ's favorite title for Himself was Son of Man. And in that title, Son of Man, you get the manhood reality and the Godhead reality, that Christ is God and man in one person, Jesus Christ. John saw what Daniel saw. 
He saw the Son of Man, or one like the Son of Man, now with ascended glory and dressed for the task of fellowshipping among his bride, the church. And the seven lampstands are not just those seven churches. They are, except they are an expression of the eternal reality that is a resurrection reality that Christ dwells among all of his churches. That even now, as it was then, Christ in his ascended glory communes with his people, especially on the Lord's day. Especially on that day. Do you know how many people showed up to the Trump rally in Gastonia? A far sight more than people show up to church on Sunday. And for what reason? Has Christ ever beclowned himself with immorality? See, the world is busy with orange man bad. I don't care. Christ is in our midst. Right? And we, I mean, I, listen, I struggle with this. I don't remember Sunday morning at 5.15 when my alarm goes off because I need to get over and review my notes, and I think, I just want to stay in bed. But for what? Or I've got something else to do. I've got an appointment. With who? I mean, who? Who is on earth second to Christ? In terms of glory. Well, it'd probably be the most wealthy, most powerful person on earth. You know who those people are? Tech moguls. Jeff Bezos. I, I wouldn't want to spend one second in his presence unless he wanted to give the church some money. I would, I would go have dinner with Jeff Bezos if he was willing to give a no-strings attachment to pay for the parking lot tomorrow. And a playground, of course. <laughs> but we pay these people homage. I remember when we used to go to the church... Um, at our Savoring Youth Lutheran, well, a church. It was a church because we were there. It was a Boy Scout hut. And we would always drive home after church around noon, and we would go down 321 towards Gastonia, and there would be cars lined up going to the Carolina Panthers games. The Panthers. I mean, really? The Panthers. For what? So I can be in the Bank of America Stadium on the Lord's Day. And who's showing up there? Well, nobody. That matters. Not really. I mean, Christian McCaffrey is a great running back, but he does not walk among the churches. So who does? It is the Son of Man. He is the Messiah. And so what John is writing is this vision so that when there is a Christian who is being dragged into the arena to be eaten by lions, their heart might be focused upon that vision that is a true vision of real things, and that is that Christ walks among me. He is in me. He fills me. He is among the church. 
And this is what Christ was always telling Israel, and he has told us even now. In Exodus chapter 25, they are told as they build the tabernacle that you are to put seven lamps in the tabernacle. Those lamps represent the whole of Israel. Not just seven people. All of Israel. The whole church. God's intention is to get everybody in the same place where He is. That's it. That is redemption. So that in Psalm chapter 16, this is to be our response as those who are dwelling in God's presence. Psalm chapter 16, verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. Your flesh. What that means is you have every confidence in the bodily resurrection. For you, that is, someone singing of Christ, will not forsake my soul to the grave. You will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. This is about Christ and this is about His church. In the presence of God, He does three things. He shows me the path of life, He fills me with joy, and He gives me eternal pleasures. This is how it happens. This is the reality that undergirds the promise. He sees the Redeemer, who was once broken and humbled. He still had the scars in his side and in his hands and in his feet. But he is dressed in a white robe with a golden sash indicating his exalted state of kingly priesthood. And as prophet, he says to John, I will send you. I'm sending you to write these letters, or I'm calling you to write these letters. That the exalted Christ is present with the church in their sufferings. Remember, many of these churches were suffering. But does that affect the exalted nature of Christ Jesus? No. He is with us in His exalted state. So that in our sufferings, the church might be exalted. Because this is the thing. Whatever is true for Christ is true for the people among whom He walks. You become what you behold. You become like the one who dwells among you. This is the covenantal reality of God's promises. So what are we then to do? If there's a takeaway, right? Because this is a big book. And there are lots of applications. And for the whole book... One of those applications is what? Verse 7, behold. What does behold mean? Look. The primary application of the book of Revelation is to do what? Open your eyes and look. But whenever you look at something, and it's something glorious, it never leaves you unchanged, does it? We are to look and be transformed. Your eyes are to be wide open and to see what the Scriptures say of Christ Jesus. And it is this reality of looking and hearing and seeing. It is not as though we were just told to look and go, well, where is it? You know, like you're looking for shooting stars in Gastonia where there's all this 
atmospheric interference. You never see any of them, but go to like somewhere out in the west where there are no lights whatsoever. You don't have to look long. As soon as John is given the call, he turns and he sees Christ. This reality of understanding that Christ is in our presence must shape everything that we do. The way that R.C. Sproul would always say it, this was his theme, we must live coram Deo, God in our midst, God with us. Now this is not an Advent sermon, but this is what the Advent is. It is to live in light of and rejoice and see Christ in our midst. And how we receive Him and His Word has everything to do with the fact that He is either our King who dwells among us in peace, or He is the King and He will bring judgment upon us. Brothers and sisters, it is the Lord's day. It is a day to hear His voice and to see that Christ is, even now, exalted in our midst, that He is with us now and forevermore. And this is the great reality that shapes everything we do. Let's pray.